Hello there. You are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. What a wonderful time that I've been having. My uh, executive producer, Mr. Michael Lee Simpson, has been just flooding me with fantastic talent, incredibly intelligent people that I get to speak to. Originally, this podcast was about, and it still is, about Inspired Minds and the creative process and what the muse looks like and what the blank page looks like. and But then I'm realizing more and more as I'm kind of branching out a little bit, I was originally talking to people mostly in Hollywood and very brilliant people. And I've talked to therapists and best-selling novelists and it's been fun. And as I mentioned last episode, about 14 countries or so listening to us, So every episode, I will be doing an international high five where I will pick out one of said countries. And this one will be Australia. Australia, and as I often like to do, I will start this off with the national anthem for Australia. It is called Advance Australia Fair. Here it comes. Bunch of horns coming in. And then... All right. Enough of my singing. Australia, I want to talk about your music. You got a lot of good other stuff. Vegemite, I don't even know what that is, honestly. I don't think anybody does outside of Australia. Nevertheless, kangaroos, wallabies, crocodile dundee, yep, but you got ACDC, bam, you got the Divinals, bam, Midnight Oil, great, Crowded House, what a fantastic band, my God. Technically, I think from New Zealand, but it says here, Australia, I'm going with it. And finally, the only band that really matters, in my opinion, besides The Clash, perhaps, is Nick Cave. Nick Cave from Australia. Do whatever you can. Go see him live. Uh, he's a divining rod of brilliance. And that's it for Australia. National Anthem stops because I would like to introduce the next interviewee, and that was uh, Doris Kassop. Brilliant woman, Doris was the former head programmer over at a little thing called HBO. And currently she has her own production house and it is called Mother Films. And she has a great, great lineup of shorts and all kinds of projects, including one that we did discuss called uh, Fuck Em Right Back. It was fantastic. There's this guy in it who's just a star, my goodness. And she's really good at finding stars. And we got a chance to talk about her passions of politics and helping refugees, and Latino and Latina representation in film and television, which is a big, big thing for me. So, as always, I hope you enjoyed this, as enjoy this as much as I did making it. All right, folks, here's the show. Bye. Uh, Hello, everyone. I am speaking to the fabulous Doris... By the way, is it KSAP or KSAP? Well, it's kind of we we say KSAP, um, oh. but it's a it's a name that was originally something else, so that's why it's it's a little uh, hard to place. So, uh, when I do these uh, these interviews, I always like to start off with uh, my favorite question so far, and that is: When you were younger, what was the first thing that inspired you? Like a film, a show, a song. Books, books, novels, books, stories, always, always novels. I was always reading. I had to be forced outside at times, super nerd, you know, (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so yes, that was my favorite thing in the world to do is just read. Was there a particular book that really got you when you were younger? Well, um, you know, I'm a big Jane Austen person uh, yes. and, and it, it sort of makes sense because, you know, Jane Austen's books are very filmic. Uh, they're just something is always happening. The story is always moving along and, and it, and it's a very reassuring set of books because you're, um, lovely heroines do well in the end always you know sure. uh, but then I got you know I loved all kinds of books most but mostly novels um I spent you know I like biographies it's and I do like nonfiction, but mostly novels and my favorite book in high school was Middlemarch so never heard of it actually what is that oh Middlemarch um is a sprawling kind of like if you put Jane Austen and made it 600 pages about these families in, in an English town and, um, and the sort of town politics, et cetera, written by George Eliot. Yeah. This is why I love doing these things is I get to learn so much. Like I'm an eternal student, so that's on the list. Mm -hmm. So as a storyteller, well, let me ask you this, actually, do you, do you see yourself as a storyteller? Yes, at this point, yes. I mean, whether it's me telling the story or working with talent to tell the story, yes, that's what I want to do. And that's what I, I, I left my corporate job, which was a great job and had a lot of story in it for sure, um, and decided to branch out on my own and produce. So that's what I'm doing. You know, I, I kind of figured that you were a storyteller, obviously. And mm -hmm. what kind of jumped out to me was this concept of being a story divining rod. Like right. you know, those those water witches that they used to have, right? Um, I it's been commented to me that I am friends with many many writers and many performers even before um, deciding to be on the quote unquote creative side of the business. I don't always like that distinction because there's so much creativity and all kinds of work. Um, but yes, I think I have a good eye for 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 people for talent. That's what I'm, I'm really enjoying. You absolutely do. And um, so I know that you were uh, the, uh, the senior vice president over at film, uh, film acquisition over at HBO. And um, what are the themes that attract you? The themes, the overall themes, or are there? Oh, yes. For me, there's two things I'll say. One is um, I really very much respond to underdog stories where uh, systems – and injustices are used against themselves. So nine to five, where they could lock uh, their boss up for two weeks and nobody noticed because they were actually running the company the whole time. And then they end up using that sexism against itself as they start to, you know, to to fix the company and, and then, you know, have their happy ending. Or something like Working Girl, where it's classism used against itself, where nobody suspects her because she's, quote unquote, just the secretary. Mm -hmm. um, that follows through in this first short film that I produced um, is kind of somebody understanding the system and and whether it's a small, you know, battle in a larger war, they win in that moment. And then the other thing I want to say is that my favorite aspect of all of these is comedy. And I believe that comedy is the, the, the most potent superpower in art. And, you know, I give this example for my company, I, I would like to do this kind of comedy and I won't do it exclusively. There are other things I love and other projects I love, 
But I often talk about the fact that as a buyer of film, and I've bought thousands and thousands of films and um, have attended, I don't know, hundreds of festivals, film festivals. I give the example of having watched about 20 LGBTQ films, right, in these festivals, and they were moving and difficult and important and all the rest of it. But I believe that in this country, we probably wouldn't have marriage equality without Will and Grace and Ellen DeGeneres. Ah, right. Because it is comedy that moves culture um, through its humanity. And then it's culture that's necessary to have been moved to make policy possible. So uh, I have a lot of political activism in my background, in my work, um, in my uh, last few years, for sure. And I really believe that, that first of all, I enjoy comedy the most, right? But I do believe it, it, it can lead to the moving of hearts and minds in a way that other things simply are not going to be able to do in the same way. That's interesting. I've never thought of it that way that you're, and you're right, that comedy, there is a line between, or a through line rather, with comedy, policy change, social change, and then real change. That's how I describe what I like to do, what I want to do. Why comedy specifically as opposed to drama and other genres? Because in comedy, you relax and things get in, you know, um, you exhale, you're laughing, you're exhaling, you're relaxing, your body's relaxed, your heart is relaxed. And it's that what makes something funny is the unexpected plus recognition of, of, of the, of the, of the situation as something that could happen to you. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a quicker route for people to see each other's humanity and um and and you know difference can fall away and therefore i believe that it it just will move someone to be a little more open right that's amazing and you know you're right because i just realized something that i often say that comedy good comedians rather are truth tellers yes yes and there's been a lot of um a lot of for instance, the horror is similar in that heart tells difficult truths, right? In a way that you can't regularly, but I'm just not a horror person. How <laughs> <laughs> you think? Yeah, I'm not, but yeah. Let me ask you this actually. So, but red pills kind of a mm-hmm. completely bananas horror movie. Well, red pill. Um, I came on board as an executive producer and um, the salesperson for it because of my relationship with Tanya Pinkins. Tanya, for those of who do not know who she is, she's just a legend on Broadway and she's won a Tony Award and probably should have won a few more. Um, incredible actor, um, incredible activist. And she and I became close. We met through activism. So many of the art artists I've met, I've met through activism here in New York. And, you know, I will say that, you know, I marched a lot. I fundraised a lot. I went to the border, I, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I helped organize and set up groups to flip state elections, et cetera. And I met her during the uh, International Week of Women at the UN when I was helping an organization and she was helping an organization. And we became friends and she is an incredibly compelling artist. And she, when I left HBO, she had talked to me about producing the film, but I was really burnt out when I left. And that was yeah. But then later I became involved with her, became a small investor in the film when it needed money. And uh, from Rough Cut Stage was one of her partners. And um, I love that film (laughs) because she and I are so tired 
of telling people the truth and that they don't want to hear because it's too upsetting or too disturbing. And obviously we're not alone, but there's a lot of complacency, which equals complicity too often. And so she wanted to tell this truth and I wanted to help her. And you have the mighty, excuse me, the mighty Ruben Blattis. He is one of my idols. I mean, me too. <laughs> every time he opens his mouth, he just raises the bar for everybody. He's so amazingly talented. Yes. Brilliant. And the Milagro Beanfield War, if I'm not mistaken, that was him as well. Yes. That was my first intro to that. And, you know, actually, I'm going to go kind of all over the map because that's what I do because I have ADHD, <laughs> probably. Um, so what I think is, well, there's so many things I, I can kind of bounce around on, but, you know, you mentioned, um, about the activism and, and, and the activism through art. And I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I really want to underline this, that you are, um, you, 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 you work very hard. I can tell for inclusion of women and, uh, and, and, and also your work with, uh, immigration rights and refugee rights. Um, where did that come from as a kid? Um, well, I was born in Bolivia. Yep. I became a U.S. citizen when I was 29 um, because the whole time up until in my 20s, I'd had a U.N. visa through my father's work. And my father was involved in politics in Bolivia. And I come from a family that has been involved in politics. Um, he was he was <clears throat> he was working in Bolivian Foreign Service in the 60s. And then there was a coup and he couldn't go home. And so he got work at the UN. And then when I was in first grade, there was this brief spell of civilian rule and he was asked to be ambassador to the OAS. And most Americans don't know what that is. It's the North and South American NATO. So we moved to Washington. We had ambassador's residence and all the rest of it. And then within a year, there was a coup again. And we came back to New York and he was lucky enough to get his work back, which was not assured. And so I, I think that one of the things that happened in, so we've always, there's been public service, right, in in my family, but I, that I didn't want to go into politics myself. And I've been asked over the time, like, do you want to run ever for anything? Absolutely not. Um, so I've always been volunteering and doing things like that on the ground. And I, and I'm somebody who who will fundraise, but also needs to be on the ground doing things. And um um, after or before in 2015, it just became so obvious that we were really getting to an emergency where oh, yeah. it really wasn't one party versus another party, but rather a fight for democracy, which is yeah. still ongoing. And so I, I certainly, I have the, the great privilege of choosing the U S like many immigrants and, I, even though I was brought up here, I went to South America a lot. I, I went home a lot. Um, and I could have stayed with just a green card, but the only reason I trans, uh, you know, be, went from a green card to citizenship was to vote. And I, I understand what it is like in other countries and what can happen. And so I think a lot of foreign born um, Americans have understood the risks of the current current uh, movements, et cetera, um, to a much greater degree than people who have just can understandably take it for granted that, that something like a coup could never happen here or whatever. But um, I, I think that is a common theme amongst people I know who aren't 
originally from here or who mm-hmm. are even first generation. Yeah. And uh, just to get dark for a heartbeat and then sure. we'll go back to fun stuff. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I had, a, I had somebody that I know actually who uh, Venezuela and they had a really frightening uh, statement. They said, fascism comes at you faster than you think. Absolutely. It happens. It'll happen really fast. And, and, you know, everything that's going on, that's why when I had to decide where to focus sort of after the 2016 election, it was on state, yes. state elections. Um, um, the, the people on the right are laser focused all the time on local government. And that is really where, where it's going to start. And yeah. you can see it with everything that's being passed. Sure. Every insane um, liberty ben- ending thing that's being passed, you know, voting rights and women's rights and rights and LGBTQ rights. And it's, it's, it's terrifying. Actually. It is. And, and, you know, they're going like school boards. That's where they're starting. Yes. Yeah. I, I can, yes. I can see that playing out. Um, so I'm, let me, let me kind of tie this together to, to a more upbeat conversation <laughs> perhaps. So, you know, I have this little working theory about storytelling. Um, not only talking about theory really, but I think everyone's got stories within them and, what you need to be is you need to be a divining rod for the stories that are floating out, be they songs, be they uh, stories, be they recipes. I think recipes also were generational transmissions of mm-hmm. the oral tradition. The oral tradition is so important to me. You know, we had the griots in Africa, you had the minstrels uh, just over and over again. And my little naive theory is that this country and really the, the heart of the world, God, I sound pretentious, but it can be saved through oral storytelling. I fervently believe that. Yes. And um, so there is a great quote, and I would love to attribute it, but I don't know where I heard it. And it's the shortest distance between two people is a story. <sighs> Ooh, and, I'm stealing that. Yeah, I love that. Spread it far and wide. And it relates, will relate it to politics because um, in story, again, whether it's comedy or or drama or horror, uh, it is the recognition of, of yourself, of humanity, of your story. And you could be there and you could identify with the character or the person telling the story. And um, it reminds me of this uh, political strategy, which I wish we had more money and time for called deep canvassing. And deep canvassing is not just going door to door, but having a conversation with a person that is, about values and not about policy. So it, and once again, when you relate it to a human story, and in this case, often true stories, um, or putting yourself in someone else's place within a story, then you can see that actually your values may be more aligned than not. So for instance, um, there are some women group, women's groups, uh, I think of one called Galvanize, which is led by white women wanting to speak to other white women. And they, and, and they enter into a conversation, uh, let's say, around um, women's bodily autonomy and rights. And it will be like a, a story about whether if your daughter's life were at risk, what would you do? You know, and, and this happened to this woman and, and, you know, this whole insanity, for instance, about ectopic pregnancy. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so deep canvassing is considered the number one um, application of 
of communication, of political communication that could actually move minds and have people understand that they actually aren't so far apart. But it's expensive and time consuming and it doesn't get done nearly enough. But yes, it would be amazing to be able to have people just tell each other stories. Yeah, it really would. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a therapist um, and I like to I, I tell my clients a lot. I'm like, just tell me a story. And they're like, I don't have any. I'm like, of course you do. You got one that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And then I like to try and draw the meaning out of the story. Why did you say that, et cetera? And then I get to tell them, congratulations, you're a storyteller. Right. I mean, I, I, having been through, having taken a huge leap out of a job that was a lovely job, a great, great long career at HBO, and really not knowing what I was going to do, uh, there were a lot, a lot of senior management left after the AT&T merger. Um, but most people went on to get the same kind of jobs. Um, but I didn't want to do that. And so what has ended up happening is what is the story? What is my story about myself within this and that the constructing of your story for your own self is really, um, how you, for me, how, how I find the next thing I want to do or how I come to being at peace with how I want to proceed regardless of the risk or the, the lack of certainty or whatever. So it does come down to making your own story. Yeah. So, yeah, that's actually a modality called mm-hmm. uh, narrative therapy that I love, which is yeah. just telling your story, finding the narrative theme, finding the meaning in it. And you know, that's what's so fascinating about you. And especially after this conversation so far, you've, you're able to divine meaning. I'm starting to realize more and more. <laughs> I suppose so. Yes. Um, I, and, and I'm also, I'm so interested in other people's stories and the meanings they come up with for themselves and for their lives and for what they want to do. And so, yes, I love, I love talking to uh, people who's, who describes themselves primarily as storytellers, writers, actors, rappers, all of it. Right. Yeah. And so speaking of rappers or so, um, I mentioned the red pill. Can you talk actually a bit about mother films in general? And that was that your transitional move? Yes. I mean, as soon as I was leaving HBO, I needed to start a company, an LLC, just because I knew I might do some consulting and sure. I needed to have a business to, to accept payment or also expenses, you know, just the regular business reasons. I'll tell you that about a six months or a year after I've, I said, Oh, I should make a website. And I hired somebody and I paid her half her upfront half. And then she kept saying, well, send me material. And I just like, I actually don't know what I would put on there. I, had nothing, <laughs> I don't know what I would say. And there's plenty to say in terms of what I've done before, but, but I didn't know. Um, and, you know, I had people giving me ideas. So for instance, oh, you could be Latina this and the, or Latina that, or make like, and I was like, no, I don't, I, I care very deeply about inclusion. And, but for me, it's going to just come because that's my preference. You know, I'm not going to dictate to myself what I have to do or not do or with whom I'm going to work. Sure. Um, and um, it took another, so that was maybe spring of 21 when I pay this woman because in 2020, I did take a, a bunch of time off because I was so burned out and I was I needed to sort of heal. Um, and then I took until the, our film, the short film I produced, got into Sundance. And I thought, wow, I really do need a website. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so then I was able to send her um, material on Red Pill and on the two other films uh, for for whom for which I had served as sales agent and executive producer. And so now that's Mother Films right now is um, following the unfolding of what's happening with this short film that I made and a couple of other projects that I am hoping to help get made. That's about it right now. Fantastic. So now let's get to uh, a thing, something I could talk about for the rest of this interview, the next 30, 20 minutes or whatever it is. Fuck him right back. I am in. That's amazing. (laughs) So if you don't mind talking about that and specifically this, uh, this DDM, like all of them are fantastic actors, but this DDM, uh, star that you or some, you or somebody found, oh my God, this person's, this guy's amazing. Right. So I'm glad you're saying that because he's the whole reason for the making of the film. So you're going to like this story. Um, he, I was sitting on my couch in 2018 and uh, this video came across my, my Facebook feed and it's DDM. And at that moment he wasn't going by DDM. He was going by his regular name, not his rapper name. Cause he wasn't rapping in this instance. He's sitting in a chair reading Omarosa's book. And it's <laughs> hilarious. It's hilarious. <laughs> he does it in eight segments, but I was riveted because he's so funny. And I guess he had just thought to do this and then it went viral. And then he named himself the secretary of shade. Nice. Those of us who follow him are his cabinet. Of course. And he was having weekly cabinet meetings. Um, So I immediately, what fascinated me about him, I was so impressed. What fascinated me about him was also his audience was, you know, a mostly black audience and, um, and not necessarily high income. And I just thought this is such an important political voice that you don't hear. It is assumed that many communities that aren't, you know, uh, I don't know how you call them access communities. Let's call them like lower income Latinos or black families or whatever. Like they don't follow politics. They don't know about politics. They don't care. Nothing could be further from the truth. And his engagement with his audience and listening to their discussion of politics was so fascinating to me. So I, um, so I immediately reached out to him and I DM'd him and I said, um, you know, I think that you are unbelievably talented. I think that your political voice is very important. I am a, a member of an organization called The People, which is dedicated to flipping state elections. And we have a comedy fundraiser coming up in New York and I would like to pay for you to come. I will pay for your hotel. I will pay for your train. I will, you know, it's just important for me to me that they meet you and you meet them. And he just thought, who is this crazy lady? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> he says that he thought I was a bot at first. <laughs> and uh, and so then I was talking to the organizers of the event and they said, well, we actually need somebody for the VIP hour. So I showed, I shared his material and they, they hired him. So it became legit right away. Wow. They, they hired him. He came up, we became friends. And I was just, I was working at HBO, so I wasn't doing other things and I was but constantly pushing and introducing him and taking him to events and premieres. And he would come up and just trying to get someone to notice him because believe it or not, what you witnessed was his acting screen acting debut. No. Yep. Really? Yes. And I knew, I knew that he belonged on screen. I knew it with like a hundred percent certainty. Like I've never known anything. And I knew that he would, and I was trying to encourage producer friends of mine to take a look at him because I said, I 
I promise you he will steal whatever scene he's in. I mean, we'll do this and you, it'll just be instant. Right. And, um, you know, people would watch it and say, he's great. I don't know what to do with him. Or, you know, they weren't going to take a flyer on somebody that never acted before or anything. Right. And then, so after I quit, um, I said, you know, let me focus on a bunch of things I care about. And Manny, Manny is his name. His name is Emmanuel. Manny is one of them. And at one point I hired an indie rock publicist to maybe help his, because his music is amazing too. You heard it in the, in the movie. Um, to maybe elevate him on the, on the music side and then find a way to get him to all the different things he can do. That, that didn't work. Uh, the woman sort of quietly went away. Um, then I was talking to a podcast company cause he essentially already was doing a podcast that didn't, you know, really go anywhere. And then this in June, I just said, well, I'm just going to have to do this myself. So I sent him a text and said, I want to make a movie um, with you about you that captures you essentially as a vehicle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and another friend of mine, the, the director and filmmaker who, with whom I was working on a project and knows Manny from parties at my house, et cetera, said, Oh, well, I have an idea for a movie with Manny. So we went down to Baltimore. We hung out. That's where he introduced some of the plot points as, as things I'd never heard about. And when we, we decided to do a short and, um, the filmmaker sent me about four shorts and I've also have bought many shorts over my career mm. and they tend to follow sort of, um, they have, they often have certain distinct things. Like there's either it's just one scene or it's just one location, or, you know, they tend to be pretty small, uh, not just short, but kind of small. And I was like, no, no, no. I want this to feel like a film that happens to be short. Mm. And it has to be funny and it has to be basically capture Manny. And what you see is Manny's life. He works for the electric and gas company in Baltimore. And he, um, and so from the moment I sent that text to in maybe May, late May to, we shot in August in Baltimore. Um, The director Harris Duran worked around the clock to edit it. And we submitted it to Sundance on the very last day of submission. And it got in. <laughs> wow. Under the wire. <laughs> Under the wire. And, um, you know, they broke records this year for short submissions. And there were 14 U.S. narrative shorts. So that was pretty intense. Uh, you know, honestly, I'm not surprised. That thing, it's interesting, actually, that you say it's a short film and a movie. Because it's kind of the experience that I had while watching it. Because it moves really well. Mm-hmm. And Yep. And it tells that whole story. Um, what's, the, what's the next plan for that? Is it kind of moving around? Well, we had, um, you know, we had a beautiful reception, both from the press and from audiences. Of course. And we are, Manny and I are moving on to, we're exploring the making of a series, not exactly of that exact place, time, short, you know, but based on him. And he, he I mean, he it's wonderful that he is so great, but he is playing himself. <laughs> yeah. I noticed. It doesn't matter. It's still, he's still acting. I mean, that's not, you know, um, that was, and I should say that when I was on set, there was one, you know, the first day of shooting, cause I paid for the whole thing with, you know, this is an investment of mine. Sure. I, um, I had a moment where I was like, okay, take a beat and just realize that the thing you were so sure of is actually happening. And you were right. He is amazing. 
he's amazing on screen and he's going to have a career in this. And um, in fact, soon after he made the short, I also, because he's also, as you can tell, he's a a serious fashion guy. Oh, yeah. Um, So I've been speaking to some fashion companies and some music companies. And finally, I just said, man, you know, um, I'm kind of behaving like your manager. So maybe we should talk about that or I should stop and you should get a manager. So I'm now I'm his manager. Congratulations. (laughs) That is fantastic because, um, you know, earlier I was saying that you're uh, a story divining rod and then you're a meaning divining rod. Clearly you're a star divining rod. Yeah, I think so. Right? I think that he's a star. He is can, a star. I used to work, as I mentioned earlier, I used to work in the music business for quite some time. And I have sometimes I've had that same thing. I'll see somebody who's young and I'm like, that you can just tell because you're you're yeah. in tune with it. Yep. Yeah. His presence, his charm, his and and his incredible goodness comes across. I mean, he's yeah. just a really great person as well. Yeah. yeah, we're talking to some companies now who have reached out to us, which is really fun. Uh, hopefully that's what happens next. You're being pitched. It's a nice feeling, as I'm yeah. sure you always have in the past. Um, so uh, I did want to kind of touch on a couple of things. Um, first of all, I just want kind of a, a few more things. I don't want to take up too much of your time. And um, the the Latino, Latina thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that uh, it, it's incredibly underrepresent, uh, underrepresented. Represented? Mm-hmm. That's right. Represented. Um, what is it? <laughs> underrepresented. Thank you. I <laughs> I haven't had coffee yet. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, so, but what do you, this is kind of a open-ended question, I guess, but what is, why are there barriers in art or Hollywood, let's say in TV for Latino actors, issues, et cetera? Well, I think that people, um, there's a couple of things. And whereas people are, are, are I don't I'm not going to say find it easy because that's not correct. Um, but Latinos are so diverse, and I think that's where people do fall into. In, I'm t- talking about the attempts so far at quote unquote Latino storytelling. Um, they fall into trap of trying to make it like there's one Latino, uh-huh. which is not true in at all and what we haven't seen is the specificity of stories that that then become universal the more specific something is the more universal it is right and so there are a lot of cliches you see on screen oftentimes and and the other thing is and uh, again this is why you're going to see if i do tell a latino story it will most likely not be a very dark story from start to finish. There's always going to be undercurrents. I mean, if you think of fuck them right back, it's talking about it's, it has something to say. It's talking about uh, the unfairness of systems Mm -hmm. and how only certain people are subject to those systems and those institutional systems. And in the difficulty of, of being um, caught in those systems. Um, But so many things that I see, uh, in Latino storytelling tend to be very, um, I don't know, just not melodramatic. That's the wrong word. Um, Just about, about darkness or suffering. And in, you know, there are obviously exceptions, but I, I think that we, the reason I care so much about inclusion is I don't just care about it 
in front of the camera, in front of the camera, but I care about it in, in, in the creative companies mm-hmm. as much as I care about it in anything else, because it's the people who are green lighting the stories who are going to get it or not get it or take a risk or not a risk. And, you know, I have a friend who's like, uh, they get a, you know, they take a chance on someone else. They take a risk on us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and I will say that for every non, um, non cisgendered white, you know, group, but I, I just think it's, it, it's just very hard to break into these systems and break into these companies. And once you're there, it's very hard to move up. It's very hard to move up and it is changing, but it is changing so slowly. So when I hear people say, well, this is a very bad time to be a white man. I'm like, really? Cause <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you look at television and film, it's still predominantly white. You oh, know, yeah. so I, I don't understand that, that, the intense difficulty of that. Man, I'm a white um, male. I'm repressed. <laughs> Come on. Right, right, right. It's sort of silly. And it doesn't mean, and, and it, yes, it means you might have to compete slightly more. That is true, of right? Um, I'm hearing about it, getting into schools, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know what to tell you except it's racism. Yeah, <laughs> flat out. It's racism. 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I, and, and, and also when you're, when you're Latino, it's like, and you don't have an accent, for instance, like me, people, there have been times in my life where people are like, well, you're not really Latina. Oh, okay. What do you mean? And they're like, well, you don't have an accent. I'm like, what? Or, or you went to Harvard. And I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, minority is actually a, a mathematical term. It doesn't, you know, <laughs> really not apparently assigning it a sociological term that means underclass. So my favorite example of, of this kind of such entrenched, entrenched otherness to us is the phrase minority majority state. You're like, what? What? If you're in a, if you're in, if you're in the majority, you're no longer a minority. You, know? yeah. <laughs> you hear that phrase all the time. And, um, it's just the way, even in our being, even when we're the majority, when Brown and black people are the majority, um, it's still, it seems impossible to change that, um, that, uh, mindset. And it's because, yes, apparently people are keeping track of who has more power and more presence. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, that, that insight. Um, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's honestly, I'm kind of surprised slash not really at all that people would say, oh, you're not Latina. You don't have an accent. <laughs> Come on. Mm-hmm. But well, because they, they, um, the thing that cover the bizarre conversations I've had, um, and I've had actually somebody say this to me, like, well, why wouldn't you want to be considered white? And I was like, what? Wow. Because <laughs> they just, they, yeah, I've had crazy conversations wow. and, and I'm somebody who has not, um, who has, you know, on the face of it, people just look at you and just think, oh, well, you haven't had any real issues around racism. And, and of course, okay. you know, that's, uh, I, I don't know. What can I tell you? Like when we, um, when the family bought our house in the neighbor, the, our neighborhood in Queens, you know, the agents didn't want to show us houses in certain neighborhoods. Yeah. That's all true. And, and actually my father is my grandparents, my father's parents were born in Syria. Um, so my father is dark, but it's cause he's Arab. So they emigrated 
as Christian um, Arabs, they emigrated, their families emigrated to Bolivia in the late 1880s or 1890s or something. So I'm a mix, you know. But a wonderful mix, apparently, indeed. So a couple of things I want to hit, just a couple more things and we're good. And I really appreciate all this. God, you're smart. Can I just say that out loud? Recorded? <laughs> really smart. That's the best thing, too, is I don't have to be the smartest person in the room when I do these things. It's fantastic. Not that I'm not smart. But I got to ask about reading Rainbow Live. Tell me about that, please. Oh, yes. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. What is that? I mean, I know the show, but. Yeah. So it's such a such an important and wonderful gift for kids. And it's just um, actually my lawyer, who is also a dear friend, um, Stephen Beer, is the producer who is the person who decided to bring it back and to bring it back with you know, with the the principles we're talking about with diversity and you know and it's just launched and it's it's uh I, i'm very excited i wish my kids had had it and we my kids generation kind of missed it so it's back and it's going to be um i think a powerful another powerful positive show that has incredible impact on on young people now that's great. So I guess my last question that I always like to ask, as I mentioned, I have one question at the beginning, standard questions, final question, final Jeopardy question for all the money. As a creative, when do you know you're done? Huh? Well, for me, I'm just starting on this part of my of my career. Um, so I don't know. I just first of all, when we, when I saw the script, when I, when I described the kind of story I wanted and um, the filmmaker and Manny, you know, basically did that script in three days. um, And I just read it and I knew it didn't need anything more. That's really the feeling. It just doesn't need anything more. And, um, and I feel complete when I, when I read it, I felt complete when I watched, when we were cutting it and cutting it, um, when it was finished, it was that same feeling of like, this is exactly what we wanted to tell. And this is how we wanted to tell it. And, and, you know, there's not, there's, there doesn't seem to be anything extra to it. That's really the point. Mm. There's so many wonderful films would be more wonderful if they were edited more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really do believe that most films should be 90 minutes. I agree. hundred percent. I mean, three hours. It's come on. Remarkable how, um, how films have seemed to be longer and yet say less oftentimes. Mm. So um, that's really where I, where, I, where I think you're at the kind of at the bone of what is necessary to tell the story. Fascinating. Well, you have been an incredible interviewee. And also, by the way, fun fact, thank you for correcting me and educating me on uh, how to pronounce uh, understated. <laughs> underrepresented. I appreciate or underrepresent. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Because all the education that I've had in my life clearly went out the fucking window. So you're just, you know, you're just talking and I do this all the time. I, I've often mispronounced my words that I've known forever. So I really <laughs> okay. don't think it's a big deal. <laughs> I'm gonna go shame myself in the grammar uh box that I have. Uh thank you so much for doing this, Doris. No, seriously, thank you so much for doing this. It has absolutely been a blast. Uh, to have fun with you on this on this cast. And, and, you know, this whole storytelling thing, that's exactly what I love. And so I got to get a great education from you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. And, I, and thank you for um, forgetting Manny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bye. Thank Goodbye. you so much. Bye.